So what I want to talk about this morning, the battle of faith that we face once we decide to obey God. And probably the most famous story in the Bible is Peter getting out of the boat. So let's start with that one. We'll use that as our jumping off spot. Matthew 14. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, really famous Bible story. Peter, being his boisterous, impetuous self, he just, he has no faith crisis. He just tells Jesus, Jesus, tell me to jump out on the water. I want to walk on water with you. That's great. So he's eager. He's fresh. He's hot after obeying Jesus. Like, yeah, let's do this, Jesus. So he jumps out of the boat. And then the wind and the waves are there, and now he is in a literally a do-or-die situation. If Jesus doesn't come through, I'm going to sink. Once you and I get past our faith crisis where we decide we're actually going to obey God, and we get into the situation he has presented us with, whether that's a job change or a move or a, a new ministry responsibility or whatever the case may be, we step out in obedience to God and we're excited and it's a new adventure and it's going to be great and God's going to come through and then all of a sudden fear strikes. And in Peter's case, he's looking at the wind and the waves and, and he is now, you know, it would have been fine if he just stayed in the boat, but now I'm in a do or die situation. And this is the battle not to choose faith, but the battle to stay in faith, the battle to fight through in faith. It is really easy comparatively for us to take off on some new adventure, to volunteer for some ministry or make a, a decision and yeah, we're going to do this and this is going to be great and it's going to be exciting and we're going to conquer the world for God. And then you get out in it and it's much harder and scarier than you bargained for. Whether that's doing ministry in church or foster parenting or a new job we get out into it and all of a sudden it gets really scary and there is a faith battle that has to happen am I going to fight through this all the way to the end or am I going to quit it's different than the faith crisis I talked about two weeks ago because that's just our that's our decision to to start at all am I going to start this new business? Am I going to volunteer for this ministry? But what I'm talking about this morning is after we get started, then we've got another battle to fight. And it's the battle of faith, this faltering that comes because of fear or pain while we're obeying. And we've got to press through. So last night there was a very much hyped UFC fight between Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. 
I want to use them as an example of what I'm talking about. They both have multiple press conferences to drum up hype and get everybody interested in watching the fight because you don't have to pay to fight to watch. So this is how they earn their money. And they trash talk and they get up in each other's face and they pump their chests and they act like they're going to get in a fight right there in front of the press conference at the you know when they're weighing in all this. It's all theatrical. It's totally all theatrics. But they get in and ring and they're hot and they're jumping around and they're throwing punches and they're shouting at each other and cussing each other and they're all fresh and strong. And, and then, I don't care who you are, I don't care who you are, if either one of them lands a punch on your face, it hurts. And I didn't watch the fight, but I'm told that for three rounds, McGregor just pounded Mayweather. So Mayweather is this smaller guy, and McGregor's the larger, and he just pounded him, pounded him. And he won the first three rounds. But McGregor said, on round four, Mayweather came out, and he said, for the first three rounds, I had him leaning like this while we were fighting. He said that fourth round, he came out, and he was leaning forward. And he never, ever backed up the rest of the fight. They went ten rounds. And Mayweather went from losing the first three rounds to winning the fight in ten rounds I guarantee you, I don't care who you are, if you're in that situation where you're getting a bloody face, you got to decide, am I in this or do I lay down and quit? So I just want to use that as an example of Mayweather's, his, his turnaround and his attitude, his composure under assault, under a lot of pain, under a thunderstorm of fists in his nose and his jaw and his head. He decides, I'm in this. That's the battle of faith. That's not the decision to get in the ring. It's a whole different deal to decide to stay in the ring when you're losing. So you've heard me say it before, but Peter walked on water twice. He walked on water out to Jesus when he was all excited about it. And then he walks on water back to the boat with Jesus. Right? Because... Why, when he's sinking, he has to make the decision, Am I really, do I really believe this? Do I really, really believe this or not? And Jesus saves him. John the Baptist went through a battle of faith where he started out hot and fresh and absolutely certain. He was full of faith. He knew who Jesus was and he knew who he was. And then at the end, he's, all of a sudden, he's got a lot of questions. Like, Am I in this or do I really believe this or not? So let's start in John chapter 1. This is about John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here is John in the beginning of his ministry and his interactions with Jesus. And John says, I know what I am to do. I am to prepare the way for the Son of God. And I tell you, this is the man. He's preaching to the crowd. He knows who Jesus is. He says it without any doubts. And he said, I know who I am. I know what God's called me to do. And I'm here to tell you, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And just six or nine months later, 
John is in prison and he's about to lose his head. And he's all of a sudden full of doubts because uh, Jesus isn't doing what he thought he would do. Jesus isn't saving my neck and or Jesus isn't doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. Because everybody, including John, thought Jesus was going to raise an army and fight the Romans. Like he is here to establish the kingdom of Israel. But no, Jesus was here to establish the kingdom of heaven. But even John didn't get it. And he goes through this faith battle where after he started all hot and sure and full of faith and I know what I'm called to do, and he got into it and he had to decide, do I actually believe this or not? So from Matthew chapter 11, when John heard from prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the one coming or do we look for another one? And Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John the things which you see and hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John goes through this crisis of, of doubt and fear, this battle for faith, to battle to stay in faith when things don't go his way. I am in prison and I'm about to lose my head, and Jesus is not doing what I think he should do. So, who are you, Jesus? Are you who I thought you were, or am I supposed to look for another Savior? And Jesus says, blessed are you who is not offended because of me. So, like Peter, when he stepped out on the water and then got afraid, here's John. He steps out in great faith, preaches boldly, makes the wrong people mad, and he's about to lose his head, and Jesus isn't going to save him. And he goes through this faith battle where Jesus I don't see you doing what I thought you would do so what do I do with that there is a battle we all will face when we obey God we'll step out in faith and you get into it and then all of a sudden it doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like it's not easy it's difficult I don't know what I'm doing this hurts or it's dark and scary and and I don't, know, I don't know where you are, God. Every single one of us in lots of different ways will face that at one point or another where this, the battle of faith. To stay in faith as we are obeying. Sam Fiorito, who just spoke to you, he's had a dream several years ago that he asked me about where in his dream he was in a line of people on a cliff above a river and there was a line of people jumping off the cliff into the river. And there was also a group of people over here trying to stop him from jumping in the river. He said these people were pulling on him, saying, don't jump, don't jump, don't get in the river. But he noticed that in the line of people who were in front of him who were jumping in the river, it was all his Christian friends and family. So obviously the river represents Jesus. And there's all these people trying to get him, don't jump, don't jump. But the people whom he loved and his Christian family and his Christian friends they were taking the leap of faith. Are you with me? Okay, so he, in his dream, he jumps off the cliff into the river, hits the water. He said he was flying down this really fast mountain stream, and he said it was beautiful. It was fun. It was exhilarating. And it was moving so fast, he said, that it actually stripped his clothes off. And he was f- surrounded by light, and everything got really bright, and it's the presence of God that's cleaning him off. And then, in his dream... He went over a waterfall and fell into a pit of darkness. 
And he said, he's still moving, flying down, falling in total darkness. He can't see anything. And in his dream, the first emotion, the first thought he has is, I was tricked. I should have listened to the people that said, don't jump. But he said he just kept falling, 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 flying through along the river and came out of the darkness. And he said, I came into the brightest light I've ever seen. Unnatural, bright glory of God. And he asked me, do you think that dream was from God? I said, absolutely. When we obey God, when we jump in the river and just take that leap of faith, he will always lead us into darkness. It will always lead into something scary. So some of you, you made that leap when you first became a Christian and you gave up your worldly life and you, you found God and, and Jesus and you got really excited and you got delivered of demons or addiction or healing or forgiveness or whatever you needed and like, oh, I finally have some answers in my life and Jesus is the answer. He's the way I'm going to live my life for God and then things got worse. Does that not happen? It happens to a lot of people. Life gets more difficult when you're following God. Others of you, it's, you know, whatever, you, you fell in love and, and this is the greatest romance ever and then you hit the ceiling and it got really, really hard. Or you're obeying God and step out in faith into some ministry or some job or some circumstance where you know, you know, you know God told you to do it and then all of a sudden the manure hits the fan. Things get really dark and scary. Like, God, where are you? This is the battle of faith that I'm talking about because God will always lead us into a circumstance that is too big for us, too much for us. And a lot of times it is very dark and scary. Not every day of our Christian life, not by a long shot. But there will be seasons where it will be one difficulty after another, one tragedy after another. Very hard things. And it seems like God isn't there. He isn't listening. My prayers aren't being heard. And uh, it looks like instead of God answering my prayers, more bad stuff is happening. More pain is coming, whatever that is. Sam asked me, is that dream from God? And I said, yes, absolutely it is. Because we have to go through the darkness to get to the glory on the other side. In fact, the scripture says God dwells in deep darkness. Inside of deep darkness is the glory of God. Another example of what I'm talking about here, maybe you know, there is a huge fire in southwest Oregon near Brookings that is the biggest fire in forest fire in the nation right now. And as far as personnel and equipment and money, it's the number one priority fire in the nation. Uh, southwest Oregon is all smoked in. Huge fire. Visibility is a mile, maybe, at best in some places. So on Facebook this week, I saw a video of a Christian man who lives southwest Oregon somewhere. He was filming a little video blog. of him. He's a minister of some sort. And he said, you know, on a good day, on any good clear day, from my back deck, I can see Crater Lake. I can see the mountain where Crater Lake is. It's miles off on the horizon, but it's there. He said, now from my back deck, I can hardly see a mile. But that doesn't change anything. The mountain is still there. Nothing moved. Nothing changed. The fact that I can't see means nothing. Hello? We walk by faith, not by sight anyway, so it doesn't matter whether we can see or not. Nothing about the, the facts of who God is 
or where he's at or what he said he will do or who he is, nothing changes at all in the dark times of our life. So this man was using that as an illustration that there are seasons of life where we will walk into smoke, fog, darkness, whatever illustration you want to use, where it seems like God isn't there, he isn't listening, my prayer isn't getting past the ceiling, I don't know which way is up, I don't know what to do here. Do not be afraid. God did not move. The fact that I can't see further than this doesn't mean that it is not out there. Right? I just thought that was a brilliant illustration. I've heard several preachers say in lots of different ways, don't doubt in the darkness what you knew was true in the light. When you come into a really hard situation and it seems like God isn't there, just keep doing what he last told you to do. Just keep obeying. And like Sam in his dream, you will get through the darkness and come out on the light on the other side. Don't doubt when it's dark what you knew was true when it was light. Just keep going. So Peter, as he's walking on the water, obviously the lesson for us is he should have kept his eyes on Jesus instead of looking at the wind and the waves. John the Baptist doubted Jesus because... Jesus says he was offended with him. He said, don't be offended with me. I do what I do and I don't do what I don't do. You just trust who I am. So we don't look in the darkness. We don't worry about the smokiness. We just know that he is there regardless of whether we see him or not. In the old days of battle, there used to be what was called the fog of war. And the muskets and cannons that put out a lot of smoke. And it was called the fog of war. After about two volleys of shots, the battlefield is completely smoked in. Which is why, if you've ever watched movies about the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, and you've wondered about why they didn't wear camouflage, and why are they playing flutes and drumming drums, and they have these big colorful flags, and they weren't interested in hiding. Uh, Like we use warfare today. They were interested in communicating with each other through the fog of war, which is why they used drums and trumpets. That in battle, guys would get so turned around in the smoke and what was called the fog of war that they'd end up shooting at their own side because they literally didn't know which direction was which. And so the generals could issue battles by certain beats on the drum. They would issue their orders. And the guys would hear their own regimental um, trumpet tune you know, on the bugle or whatever, and they would know... They would, be, they would know the orders, okay, you know, wheel right or flank to the left or whatever. They were doing the, the officers could issue them orders and they would be able to do it and obey even when they couldn't see because they were tuned in to the drums and the flute and the trumpet. Sometimes they used flags. They would wave flag communication at each other on the battlefield over a distance and so on. But none of that works if they didn't drill a thousand and one times every day for months before the battle. You know, it's a long tradition of soldiering that boredom is, you know, boredom is a soldier's life. And you do the same thing over and over and over again. They would march in formation. March, march, march. Same trumpets, same drums, same pl- over and over and over. But I guarantee you they were really glad that they knew what was going on when the bullets started to fly. There's a reason why police officers and soldiers and firefighters and EMTs drill over and over and over again till their response becomes almost muscle memory. 
the firefighters know exactly where every piece of equipment is on the truck because they might be in the dark in heavy smoke. Hello? The EMTs know where every piece of equipment is in the ambulance. The police officer does not have time to freeze up and have a panic attack when there's an active shooter or a car wreck with six people on the pavement. Right? So let God drill you in the boring everyday routines of prayer and scripture reading and fasting and worship and praying in tongues, James says, strengthens our faith. God is not boring us to death. He is drilling us. Every day, every day, do the same thing. Do the same thing. Why do I need to do this, God? I've already read this book of Bible three times in my life. I know what it says. Read it again. Because there's coming a season two years from now where you will live and die by every word in this sentence. If you wait until emergency, you have no idea what to do. And I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about your soul now. In the battle for your faith, in the battle for your soul, or for your family, or for your healing, or whatever it is that you need to stay in faith for, we're not going to have time for a panic attack. We're not going to have time to freeze up or to run. We've got to know exactly who God is, what He has said He will do, and how He wants us to behave, whether we're in the sunshine or whether we're in blinding smoke. In the greatest tragic moments of our life, we've got to know who God is so that we don't freeze up or run. We stay in faith and keep believing Him. So that's the battle of faith. I know that you all know that in our earthly armies and marine forces and so on, there are people who go to battle and they don't come home the same. Right? They're missing a leg or an arm or their face. Or sometimes the wounds are not physical. It's PTSD. It's rage. It's anxiety. It's whatever. And we don't blame those people for what happened to them. As a society and as a government and a nation and a veterans administration, I know there's problems with the veterans administration and the government, but but we don't blame them. We don't put the burden of their wounds on them. Nobody expects them to be able to just come back and live a normal life. Well, I just want to remind you that we are in the battle of faith, in the wars of the kingdom of heaven, there's a lot of wounded warriors walking around. I suppose most of us have lived through church splits or betrayal or even physical tragedies that that just so deeply wounded us. And there's guys in the natural who've got their leg blown off by an IED. There's people walking around who are been serving God in the past and they've had their heart blown out through some tragedy that happens or some betrayal or whatever. And I was exchanging emails with a lady in our church whose dad used to be a pastor, and I actually know several. I think I can count five or six men that I know personally who used to be pastors, some of whom are still walking with the Lord, but some of them you wouldn't even know they're Christians. They're so badly destroyed by their church or their elder board that you wouldn't even know that they used to be a pastor. And there's other Christians on the other end of the spectrum, the same thing. They're hurt by their pastor or who betrayed them or whatever. And 
I just want to say this morning that, and I said it in an email to this lady in the church, I said, I think those wounded warriors of the kingdom deserve every bit as much respect as our wounded veterans that come home from battle in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam or whatever the case was. You may look at somebody who used to be all hot and full of faith and living for God, and man, they were on fire. And then you look at them now and you think, what happened? They're not doing anything for God. They're hardly even professing Christians. And I would just say, in some cases, it is just laziness and carnality slipping in over time. But in a lot of cases, those people just have some pretty serious wounds that you can't see. You know, we can see blown off faces and legs, but you can't see a blown apart soul. A lot of times you can. I mean, it shows up in rage and alcoholism and whatever else. But there's a lot of wounded Christians walking around out there, people who honestly believe. And they honestly do serve God. But just like the veterans who come home without a leg or an arm, they're spending the rest of their life in medical treatment just to live out the rest of their life. Nobody expects them to be a productive soldier anymore. We just we, we pay for their wounds and we give them benefits and we let them live out their life. There are some Christians out there who, who genuinely, truly believe, but you wouldn't know it because they're just trying to survive. And Jesus will sort all that out when he returns. There are some people who have rejected him and walked away and gotten lazy or angry or whatever. And he'll sort the sheep from the goats. But there's a lot of people that you would think they gave up on the Lord, but they didn't. They just got their face blown off. And they're just surviving. And they deserve honor and respect. The battle of faith. Again, I want to say the same thing I've been saying for weeks to have to fight through fear or darkness or unsurety or questions and offenses, that's not failure. I'm trying to correct so much teaching that's presented on faith as you can't be afraid and you have to be bold and you have to conquer the world and you can't confess that you have questions or doubts or fears. That's not right. Fear and doubt are the proof that the faith is present. Because if you, if you have never done anything for God that scares you, you've never done anything in faith. <laughs> You're just doing what comes easy and is comfortable and natural for you. But there are some things that will kill our faith. In this battle we're fighting, there are things that will kill our faith if we let them into our heart. And I do want to close this morning with that. Failure of faith, the death of faith, giving up and quitting. It, it's totally a reality and there are people who do it. And there is victory for Satan when that happens. But a failure of our faith is, like I've said the last couple weeks, it's not fear, it's not honest doubt, it's not questions or concerns about outcome. We can talk all that through with God, just like Moses and Gideon did. Uh, Having a faith crisis is not a failure of our faith. Having a faith battle is not a failure of our faith. Even being wounded in our faith is not a failure of faith. But there are some things that actually will kill our faith if we allow it into our heart. The number one killer of faith that I see in Scripture and in my own experience pastoring people, and I know in my own heart, the number one enemy of our faith, it's disappointment or offense with God. Having disappointment 
toward God that he didn't do what I think he should have done. He didn't answer my prayer when I asked him to do this and then it didn't happen. That is a, the number one killer of people's faith that I have encountered because I prayed about it and I really meant it and I trusted him and it didn't happen. So how in the world could I ever step out in faith again? I can't do that. No way. I have to fight my own battles now. I got to take care of myself. That's the number one killer of obedience to God and faith is offense with God. John the Baptist in prison sends a letter to Jesus. Are you really the Messiah? Why did he send that? Because Jesus wasn't doing what he thought he should do. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you're not offended because of me. Don't get offended with God because he did something you didn't want him to do or he allowed something you didn't want to happen or he didn't answer a prayer when you thought he should. Disappointment with God is a huge faith killer. Gideon, we read two weeks ago, almost missed his destiny because he was upset with God. Judges 6, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, The Lord brought us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. God has sent an angel to tell Gideon, God has heard your prayers, and he's seen Israel's problems, and I'm going to move today on you, Gideon. You are going to be the deliverer. And Gideon almost misses it because he's mad at God. Because God isn't still doing what he's heard God did 200 years ago. That is still a question in a lot of people's hearts today. If God is real, then why ain't I seeing it? If God is with us, then why has all this happened to us? If God is real, why have I gone through what I've gone through? Why didn't he stop it? Gideon's first question is the first question on most people's hearts. Why did he let that happen? I hear, I read the book and it's got all these fantastic stories and I hear other people telling about great miracles and where God healed them and answered the prayer and came through. Why didn't he come through in my situation? The angel is there to tell Gideon he has heard your prayers and we're answering them today. But Gideon throws up disappointment very first. Do you see it? I haven't seen any miracles. We hear the stories, but I haven't seen it. God's forsaken me. Disappointment almost destroyed Gideon's destiny. He almost missed out on everything God had for his life because he was demanding that God do what he used to do instead of what God wanted to do in his life today. Gideon was praying for revival. He was praying to see miracles like Moses. And God shows up and he says, you know what, I am going to do some, but they're going to look completely different. Don't miss it because of offense. Don't miss it because of disappointment. John the Baptist and Peter both had this experience. John is in jail. He's about to lose his head and Jesus isn't going to save him. Jesus says, Trust me, John. Trust me. Even when I don't save you. Trust me. Peter, when Jesus was talking to the crowd and he came out with the teaching about eat my flesh and drink my blood and everybody's like, this guy is too weird. We're leaving. And Jesus turns to Peter and the disciples. He says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? 
and there's so much in that. It's like, well, Jesus, I don't understand you either. You really creeped me out with what you just said. But I know who you are, and I, he said, Jesus, Peter says, who else has the words of life? There isn't any elsewhere, there isn't any other place to go. There is no other hope. So here's Peter essentially saying, Jesus, I don't understand you right now either, but I know who you are. And there isn't anybody else that gives me words of life. There isn't any other hope anywhere else. If you need to this morning, forgive God. I don't say that because God did anything wrong, but, but a lot of us have some accusation in our heart toward God. That he did something we didn't think he should have or he didn't do something we thought he should have. Forgive God. Unforgiveness freezes our heart. It holds us in the moment when we were hurt. If you hold unforgiveness toward a person, you're constantly living in the pain and the anger of that moment when they did what they did. Well, offense toward God does the same thing. You're constantly stuck in that moment and you never get to move past it. You never progress in God because you're stuck at that moment when he did or didn't do something you wanted. And we've just got to forgive. We've got to release it and let it go. And trust who he is. Even though he didn't do what we thought. Faith is trusting and obeying God without any demands. Of course we can take his word to the bank. And he will always perform his word. But we have no right to demand when that happens or what it looks like. His promise is that he will completely heal us and restore us. The battle of faith is the faith to know that I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how long that will take. I don't know that any of that will even happen in this life. But I believe that ultimately it will. It will all happen. Reinhard Bonnke likes to say, Jesus never told anybody to have faith for anything. He just said, have faith in God. Jesus said, have faith in God. Danny Silk likes to say, expectation destroys relationship. And that's true. If you put expectations on people and then they don't do what you think they should do, it breaks relationship. Well, it's the same thing with God. I have this expectation of what he needs to do and when he needs to do it and how it needs to look. And then when that wasn't ever his plan at all, it destroys relationship. Faith is just trusting who he is and what he has said and let him take care of working out the details. So offense with God or disappointment with God in my mind, is the number one destroyer of faith that we just decide we can't trust him because he didn't do what we thought he should do. Another destroyer of faith is selfishness and laziness. I just don't want to change. I don't want to obey. Absolutely, there's lots of people that do that. I'm just not going to have faith. I'm not going to obey or move. Sometimes it's pride. I don't want to be vulnerable. Faith will always put us in a position where we're vulnerable. Jesus brought Peter out of the boat. (laughs) He put John's neck under the sword. Faith in God will always make us vulnerable, and there's a lot of people in eastern Oregon that don't want to show weakness. I don't want to admit that I need anything. We can live ourselves. 
with our chainsaws and our trucks and our guns and our gold, we can just take care of ourselves. Faith is so counter to Eastern Oregon culture because we don't want to show weakness or need. Uh, I can do this. I don't want anybody to see that I have to try things and I'm failing and I'm learning. I just want to produce perfect results in public at least. That sort of pride is uh, an enemy of your faith. Self-pity is a great killer of faith. This is too hard. My troubles are so much harder than anybody else. Nobody understands. God is mean. This is too much. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I quit. Self-pity will kill your faith. Because God will take you into a situation that is difficult or painful. And self-pity will shut you down. This hurts too much. I refuse to go through with it. Another enemy of faith is optimism. That may strike you as rather counterintuitive because optimism looks so much like faith. But optimism is the satanic counterfeit of faith. Optimism is an actual, it's a refusal to have faith. Oh, everything will be all right. Is a lie from hell. Y'all look really shocked. Optimism will kill your faith. Optimism is used by cowards to excuse themselves from real faith. Because real faith always deals with the facts. And it looks the facts square in the eye and Jesus says, count the cost before you start. Real faith looks at the facts. This is what it's going to cost me to do this. This is what it's going to cost to accomplish this. And I know it's going to hurt and it's going to take a long time and I'm really going to pay. But I do it. And it isn't going to be all right without a whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Optimism will kill your faith. Optimism is cowardice. Pessimism is also an enemy of faith because it's a refusal to even try. It won't work anyway. Optimism and pessimism both are enemies of faith. Do not ever listen to either one. Deal with truth and facts. Make your decision and trust God and march forward. Do you remember me telling you the story about the POWs in Vietnam? The guy said it was the optimists that always died first. Because they had grand plans for how awesome it was going to be. And then when it didn't happen, they died. They gave up and quit. Optimism is an enemy of faith. It is a counterfeit of faith. Don't listen to it. Preachers who want to pump you up and jump around and holler and scream and we're going to go change the world, that's not faith. It's a lie. Guys who tell you the truth with hope are feeding you faith. Hope is what we need. Hope does not disappoint. Romans 5.5 5. There's a preacher that I listened to years ago and got a lot of teaching from him in the past. His name is Keith Moore, and he has a sermon he did on uh, knowing where you're at in your faith walk and how strong your faith is. Am I operating in faith? And he used an example of driving a car, your spiritual car, on the road of life. He said your spiritual car has two fuel tanks. Actually, you have two fuel gauges on your dash. Uh, of your the car of your spiritual life you're driving down the road and you need to keep an eye on your needle on the gauge of joy and peace if your joy needle and your peace needle are both on full 
you are functioning in faith. When you start to lose your joy or lose your peace, you've begun to operate in fear and doubt or self-pity or anger or offense with God. Do you see it? So what he says is trying to have faith is not the right way to go about it. We just Faith just comes as we live in obedience to God. He said the way to measure where you're at in your faith is your faith. Am I actually in faith or am I just going through the motions? The, the answer is look at your joy gauge and your peace gauge. And the circumstances of life may be manure hitting the fan. It may be tragedy after tragedy. You may be lost in darkness or smoke. But you can still have peace that passes understanding. And you can have real joy in the Lord in the most painful situations. In the most trying times, you can know that God loves you and I'm in faith and I'm walking with him. Because for some illogical reason, I am happy. For some completely ridiculous, lunatic reason, I have peace. If you have peace, if you have joy in the midst of darkness or blood, sweat, and tears or pain or whatever, you can know that you are actually living in faith with God. Your peace tank is full and your joy tank is full. Check those needles. Watch them all the time. Keep them full. That's your fuel tank, actually, is what he says. That's the fuel for your faith. You can't run on empty. You cannot have faith if you don't have peace and you don't have joy. So keep those full. I better quit. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for standing with us, Lord, when we're out on the water in the waves and the wind. Thank you that you are the immovable mountain that doesn't go away just because it gets too smoky to see you. Lord, we believe your word. We know who you are. We trust you. No matter what comes our way, no matter what circumstances life throws at us, Lord, that you are an immovable mountain, that your word is a solid rock, and it's always true regardless of what we feel or what we can see or can't see. Lord, thank you that you're always with us even in the fog of war, that you are communicating with us, that you are with us, that you have not left, that we're not alone, even if we can't see anybody else and bullets are flying. You are there. And you are not afraid, and you are not moved, and you are not panicked. Lord, we give you permission right now to drill us. To drill us to the point of muscle memory with our faith. That we would not panic, that we would not freeze up, that we would not run away and quit. But that we would know what to do, Lord, when tragedy strikes. When fear comes our way. When bad circumstances rise up. Lord, you've taught us out of your word. You've taught us in prayer and in worship and fasting and all the things, Lord, that you drill us in the everyday boredom of life. You are preparing us for the battles when they come. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for discouragement, for disappointment. We release our offense toward you right now, Lord. Lord, there are questions too big for us to answer. There's pain too big for us to carry. There's tragedy too big for us to live through. But you are who you say you are, and you are a big God, and you are a loving God, and you are perfectly in charge of everything. And we choose to trust you, even when there are questions we don't have answered. 
even when we haven't seen the miracles and the deliverance that we have prayed for. Or even when revival isn't happening. We trust you. And we will follow you. And we will obey you. We will know that you are there. And you have a purpose and a plan. That you have healing. That you have restoration. That you have love too big for us to imagine. We bless your holy name, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your steadiness. Thank you that we can have faith because of who you are. We praise you and we love you. We bless you in Jesus' name.